You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Matt Tolender, and it's great to be with you this morning virtually over Zoom. I am the leadership development pastor at Midtown, and we're continuing our series this Sunday, uh, The Psalms of Summer. And we're looking at how ancient wisdom can provide us clarity and actually bring wisdom to our modern times. So this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 19, and we have just a lot to cover. This psalm is incredibly rich. It's a very, very rich text, very dense. And so I want to begin just by reading the psalm for us, and then we'll go through and see what God has to teach us this morning. So Psalm 19, written by David. David writes, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warmed. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And God, that is our prayer as we look into this psalm, that these words uh, of my mouth as I teach and these meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So David begins this psalm with this line, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And there's much that we can say about the glory of God. The Bible has much to say about the glory of God. But what I'd like to emphasize is that glory, God's glory, is not an attribute of God. So I'll say that again. God's glory is not an attribute of God. God's glory is an act of God. It's an act, not an attribute. Um, And Abraham Joshua Heschel clarified this for me in his book, God in Search of Man. Here's what he says. He says, the glory is the presence, not the essence of God, an act rather than a quality, a process, not a substance. Mainly the glory manifests itself as a power overwhelming the world, demanding homage. It is a power that descends to guide to remind. The glory reflects abundance of good and truth, 
the power that acts in nature and history. And his understanding of glory is shaped by the story in Exodus 33, where Moses asked God to show him his glory. And God answers Moses this way, but he says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So one of the ways that I think we can understand glory and the way that I want us to, to come around it this morning is that glory is all of the ways in which a good God is acting within the universe. David goes on uh, to tell us more about how the heavens declare this glory. He says in verse two, day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Knowledge about what? Knowledge about the glory. Verse three, they have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. So they don't literally speak. This revelation is a spiritual revelation. And David is going to illustrate this revelation using the sun. Watch how he does it. Uh, picking up again in verse four. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes it circuit to the other, and nothing is deprived of its warmth. And David is doing a couple different things here. Um, just like many of us learned a lot of what we know about God from the songs that we sing in church, uh, songs were a really important part of education at this time. And so one of the things that David is doing is he is trying to educate people against pagan religion by comparing and contrasting. So sun worship was very, very common in the pagan religions that the ancient Israelites interacted with, especially in Egypt and in Canaan. And so what David is doing is he's trying to indicate that Israel's one God created the thing that the other nations worship as a God which makes Israel's one God superior to the pagan God. So there's a little bit of an educational angle to this. But also the son for David becomes a symbol of this revelation of God's goodness in creation. And we see from David's description that this revelation of God's goodness uh, has four aspects. It is four things. One, it is intentional. God pitched a tent. God did it. He intended it. It's intentional. Two, it's abundant. Three, it is continuous. And four, it is universal. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. So this revelation of God's glory, which is the presence of his active goodness in the universe, according to David, is intentional, abundant, continuous, and universal. Such that to know God's glory is to recognize that the power that acts in nature and in human history operates out of intentional, abundant, continuous, universal goodness. And as David is contemplating all of this, he is reminded of something even better than the sun. And in verse 7, he says this, The law of the Lord is perfect. The word law here is, of course, the Jewish word Torah, which means instruction. So we shouldn't think legal system. We should think instruction. We should think um, rules probably isn't even the best way to put it. Just instruction, teaching, 
the instruction of the Lord is perfect. And beginning in verse 7, David is going to change the name of God that he uses. In the first six verses, he uses the word El, which is just sort of a generic term for God. But beginning in verse 7, he begins to use the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the ineffable name, the tetragrammaton. Um, And this is the name of God that stresses God's covenant relationship with Israel, of which the law was sort of the substantive terms. And so this is kind of important for us to understand because David is going to start talking about the law and the law was terms for the old covenant. And as Christians, we live under the new covenant. So our relationship to the letter of the law is different than what David's relationship to it was. And so sometimes when, when Christians teach this Psalm, we just substitute the Bible for the law and we say, well, oh, how wonderful it is to study the Bible. And that's true. And it is a wonderful thing to study the Bible. But the point here is that just like the law, Scripture, the Bible, only benefits you to the extent that you actually live by it and obey it. So just just understanding doesn't do us any good. It's of no benefit. The benefits come when we understand it. And so David is, or when we understand and then obey it. So David is about to explain four gifts that the law gives a person And these gifts are the reward of obeying the law. You don't just get it from studying the law or reading the law or memorizing the law. You get this by living according to the law and living according to God's intention. And this starts in the second half of verse 7. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. And the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. So the law in its various forms, and that's what all of these different terms refer to, just various forms within the law. But the law in all of its various forms, the statutes, precepts, commands, it gives four gifts to those who actually live according to God's intention. And the first is spiritual vitality. David says it refreshes the soul. And this is kind of the opposite of what David, the, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Jake taught out of Psalm 32. And in Psalm 32, David describes this period of time where he had um, unconfessed and sort of unresolved sin in his life. And he described it by saying, my bones wasted away. And this idea in Psalm 19 is sort of the opposite of that. So when David was not living according to God's law, he felt like his bones were wasting away. But when you live according to God's law, that creates spiritual vitality and refreshes the soul. The second gift is wisdom. And a a really good definition for wisdom, I think, is Dallas Willard's definition. He describes wisdom as the settled disposition of the soul to act in accordance with knowledge. And in this case, the knowledge is the knowledge about the glory and the abundant goodness of God. The third gift that the law gives us as we live according to it is joy. And when we speak of joy, we're not talking just about sort of circumstantial happiness, but we're talking about a deep fulfillment that is constant, that remains unaffected when circumstances change. And then the fourth gift, to sum it all up, is enlightenment, specifically. David says uh, that, that God's law enlightens the eyes. And this is, a, this is kind of an interesting point. Um, having a good eye 
or a light eye or a healthy eye was a Jewish idiom that signified someone who was hopeful and optimistic and had a generous worldview. That's what it means to have a good eye. And this is the same idea that Jesus references in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, the eye of, is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So Jesus' warning is that it's possible to think that we are living in harmony with God's intention when in fact we are not doing so. Uh, it's very easy to confuse the voice of God with the voice in our own head. And what both David and Jesus understood is that we need revelation from God. We need his law uh, in order to know what's what and in order to perceive the world rightly. Um, so they understood that studying and obeying God's commandments gives us a kind of spiritual vision uh, so that we can deal with reality on reality's terms. Um, David calls it enlightenment. Jesus calls it the kingdom of heaven. Either way, the point is that if we aren't living according to God's intention, then we are not developing spiritual vision and we are not learning how to perceive or, per, or accept or deal with reality. So we need God's revelation to teach us how to perceive the world. We need God to teach us what is important and what's good and what's valuable and what's worth giving our time and our energy and our effort to. Um, we need God to tell us what's good for us. Otherwise, we have to settle for distortions and delusions, and those could come from all kinds of different places. We end up with distortions about how the world works and distorted understandings of reality as a result of the culture uh, that we live in, because our culture sends us all kinds of messages about what's good, what's important, what's valuable, what's worth giving our time and effort to. Um, we can end up with distortions about the way the world works on a deep sort of primal emotional level, um, just from growing up in our family of origin. Uh, from a very, very early age, we start to get a sense of the world. Um, if you study attachment theory, you know that this starts before we can even really communicate. When we're still infants, we are, uh, our souls are learning how to function in a world, and the way that we grow up in our family of origin affects our worldview in a very, very deep and significant way. So we need the law, and we need revelation from God to perceive the world rightly, and then to interact with it in the right way. So these gifts, the refreshment, wisdom, joy, enlightenment, they correspond in this psalm poetically to the life-giving, illuminating, warming light of the sun in the first section. So just as the sun reveals God's goodness in creation, the law reveals God's goodness in people and in our relationships. David moves on in the next couple of verses to sort of sum up what he's been saying here. He says, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. In other words, God's way to live will always be the right way to live, generation to generation, in all times, in all places. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, honey from the honeycomb. So the law is supreme 
in its practical value. So that's why David compares it to gold, because gold had practical value at that time. Gold meant wealth. It meant security. Uh, and the law also has an experiential value, which is why David compares it to honey, because honey for David was the, was the, sweetest, uh, the sweetest substance, the sweetest thing there was. And David says, by the law, your servant is warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. And the great reward, of course, in the context of this psalm is to experience the active presence of God's goodness, which is his glory. So as Christians who aren't under the covenant of the law, our analog for the law in the new covenant would be the teachings of Jesus. And so a Christian way to think about this would be that the extent to which you obey the teachings of Jesus is the extent to which you will experience these things, spiritual vitality, wisdom, joy, and enlightenment. And so this is good news because if you're not experiencing these things, then, then you have a pretty, idea, a pretty good idea of the problem and what the dilemma is, and you also have a, a good idea of the resolution to the problem. Um, and so, you know, 21st century American Christianity, I've noticed, tends to emphasize belief over practice. Um, and so for many of us, the primary role that Jesus plays in our day-to-day -day life, um, if you look at the way that we actually live and you consider our actions, the primary role that Jesus plays for many of us in our day-to-day -day life, if we were really, really honest with ourselves, is just that of a safety net. And if I, if I were to die today, where would I end up? But I want to suggest, um, I want to suggest that the faithfulness, and this is really nuanced, so just pay attention, the faithfulness with which you obey Jesus' teachings is the degree to which you actually have faith in him. I think the degree, the faithfulness with which you obey Jesus' teachings is the degree to which you actually have faith in him because faith is trust. And if I actually trusted that God operates out of an abundance of goodness, then I would make an intentional effort to live according to God's intention. Now, Jesus can do a lot with very little faith. That is the message of the gospels after all. But you know who can't do a lot with a little faith is you. You need faith and trust in God and to live according to his intention to experience his goodness in such a way that your soul is refreshed and that you become wise and that you experience joy and enlightenment and are able to perceive and accept and deal with reality on reality's terms. And so confronted with this idea, here's how David responds in verse 12. He turns inward. He turns inward. He says, who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. So here's a really good principle. Um, an honest encounter with the glory of God results in serious self-examination. And serious self-examination results in an awareness of sin. An honest encounter with the glory of God results in serious self-examination 
and serious self-examination results in an awareness of sin. We see this all through the Bible. One really great example uh, is in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah has his vision of the throne room of God, and he sees the glory of God, and his response is to say, woe, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among the people of unclean lips. The, the glory of God is always going to uh, confront and shine light on the dark parts of our hearts. But sin, okay, well, I'll, I'll say this. Here's a really good definition of sin, I think. This is one I heard recently from a religion professor named David Dark. He describes sin this way. Sin is active flight from a lived realization of available data. Active flight from a lived realization of available data. Now, here's what that means maybe in simpler terms. It's active flight, so running away from a lived realization, which is an experience of available data. And in this case, the available data is the glory of the goodness of God available as revealed in creation and in the law. So sin is all of the ways that I, when I'm confronted with the goodness of God and I have the available data, I turn and run in the other way and choose not to experience it. That's what sin represents in our lives. Uh, Thomas Merton put it really well. He said this in, in his book, New Seeds of Contemplation, not to accept and love and do God's will is to refuse the fullness of my existence. I think that's so, so insightful. Not to accept and love and do God's will is to say no to, it is to refuse the fullness of my existence. It is active flight from a lived realization of available data. And so when David turns inward, he is concerned about two types of sin. The first is what he calls hidden faults. So this would be the sin that I'm, that I'm not aware of. This would be the blind spots. This would be, you know, there's a difference between evil and immaturity. And this would be all of the ways that I still need to grow. It's just the stuff that I'm not aware of. So the second category is what David is going to call willful sin. So this would be a premeditated sin. This would be, I know what the law says, I know what the right thing to do is, and I deliberately do the opposite thing. The reason David is very concerned about willful sin is that if you read the law, there is no way to make atonement for willful sin in the law. The sacrifices that made atonement for sin made atonement for unintentional sin. But there was no atonement for willful sin under the law. If you read in Numbers 15, uh, in verses 30 and 31, it tells us what the uh, punishment is for willful sin. So Numbers 15, but the person who does anything defiantly, whether he's native or a foreigner, that one is blaspheming the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. So David knows the law and he knows that there is no atonement for willful sin. And so he's very concerned and asks God specifically to keep him from these kind of willful sins because he knows that the punishment is excommunication, it's to be cut off from the covenant community, and it oftentimes means death. Which, and so this explains absolutely why David is gonna end this psalm 
with the, with the prayer, may these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David wants so badly to be like the creation. Um, he contemplates the sun and he sees how creation glorifies God and it both experiences and reveals God's goodness. And David wants that to be true of him. He wants to glorify God and experience God's goodness and to proclaim God's goodness to other people by living according to God's law. And he links, this verse is linked back up to the top of the psalm because in verses three and four, he talks about the figurative speech of the universe. But then here in verse 14, he refers to his own speech, but he uses the same, the same uh, Hebrew word. So there's a connection there. Poetically, he uses the same word. So he wants to participate with the creation and testifying to the goodness of God. So that's, that's Psalm 19 wrapped up. But we are reading this psalm at a place in history where we know a lot about David's life because of writings that came after this psalm. And so we know that in the sequence of David's life, there's going to come a huge moment later on after the psalm was written where he blows it with very willful, defiant, premeditated sin. And it's a very popular story. Um, he commits adultery with Bathsheba, and she's the granddaughter of one of his closest friends. She's the husband of one of his most loyal soldiers. Um, the text says that they slept together, but there's a, a profound imbalance of power in the encounter. And as the story goes on, we see David take advantage of his power over and over again uh, in order to try and cover everything up. So when Bathsheba sends word that she's pregnant, David uh, uses his power to put her husband in peril so that he will die. Uh, and this is all in order to try and make the child appear legitimate. Um, and after all this has happened, the prophet Nathan comes and confronts David. And when he does, he verbatim quotes Numbers 15, which says there's no atonement for willful sin. And Nathan says to him, why have you despised the word of the Lord. Exact same phrase from Numbers 15. It's the only place that phrase is repeated the same way in the entire Old Testament. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in God's sight? So David has despised God's word. He's despised the law. He's done what is evil. This is active flight from a lived realization of available data. He willfully sinned. He was selfish. He was craven. He was sinister. And the law doesn't provide a way for that sin to be atoned for. David stands completely condemned. And yet Nathan says to him, the Lord has forgiven your sin and you shall not die. So how is that possible? How is it possible that David's willful, defiant sin and despising the law that he wrote such beautiful songs about. How is it that that sin can be forgiven? I think the Apostle Paul gives us an answer to this specific problem in Romans chapter three. So here's Paul in Romans three. He says this, God presented Christ to Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because, and here's our key part, 
in his forbearance, in his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So as we close this morning, we're going to take communion together. And we're going to do this now to remember Jesus Christ, who was called the son of David, and whose death and resurrection folded time over on itself so that all sin could be atoned for, all sin everywhere, all at once in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.